Today's scripture uh, deals with a couple of uh, major themes, one of them being the sovereignty of God. So we're going to start with that. First of all, the sovereignty of God is not an easy subject to wrap our heads around. Second, I believe we have a hard time with the sovereignty of God because it makes us feel uncomfortable. So I'm going to read a definition of the sovereignty of God. And as I do, I want you to think about the parts that do make you feel uncomfortable. God's sovereignty is defined as his complete and total independent control over every creature, event, and circumstance at every moment in history. Subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent, God does what he pleases, only as he pleases, and always as he pleases. He is in complete control of every molecule in the universe at every moment, and everything that happens is either caused or allowed by him for his own perfect purposes, unlimited power, unrivaled in majesty, and not thwarted by anything outside of himself, our God is in complete control of all our circumstances, causing or allowing them for his own good purposes and plans to be fulfilled exactly as he has foreordained. So did anybody feel uncomfortable? You know, that's the God that we serve. That's a God that cannot be put in a nice, neat little box. But isn't that what we try to do? We put God in a box and really only interact with him when it's comfortable to do so or when we can understand what he's doing in our lives. But God is so much greater than what our finite minds can grasp. At the last secret church that we had, the subject was God, and David Platt commented that we don't give God the awe, the reverence, and the holy fear that he deserves. We don't take the time to truly understand who God is. He's so much higher than we are. He's perfect and holy and just and loving and compassionate, and we go on and on. And he does all those things perfectly together. We can rejoice in our God's sovereignty because it's overshadowed by his goodness, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his faithfulness, and his holiness. So when I look back on my life, I can see the sovereignty of God at many different times. I can see that he was in control of my life and that he kept me from trouble and kept me from harm. Not that I never got into trouble or was never in harm's way, but it could have been a lot worse than it was. I can also look back and see times where he was guiding my life. And a lot of those times are evident in the jobs that I've had. In fact, I believe that me speaking with you here this morning at Idaville Church is the proof of God's sovereignty in my life. I also have two other personal, personal examples of the sovereignty of God in my life that I want to share with you. The first and earliest would be, would be my marriage to Judy. When I look back on how, when, and why I met her in the first place, the path was not a straight one. It was full of so many what I would call far-fetched and random events that had to take place for us to even meet. Of course, those events weren't random. He's been in complete control of my life and circumstances, causing or allowing them for his own good purposes and plans to be fulfilled, exactly as he has foreordained. The next example was the car accident that I had in July 1999 on Route 34 just outside of Mount Holly. Now, it's not the fact that I'm still alive today that proves that, that God is sovereign, but that's part of it. But to me, the proof of his sovereignty are the events in the month prior to, that, prior to, prior to the accident. 
In the middle of June of 1999, I had driven a van load of youth down and back to Kentucky. Then the next week, I drove youth to the Creation Festival, down and back, or up and back. And then the following week, Judy and I were counselors at a church camp in Waynesboro. And I had to drive up and back twice during that week to, 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 the, to Uriah Church, where I worked as a secretary, to fulfill those duties. What proves the sovereignty of God to me is that he was not only in control of my accident, but he controlled my accident. The consequences of falling asleep at the wheel could have been much worse than just a totaled car, spending three weeks in the hospital, and having to eat by an IV for four months. He was in complete control of that event, and even controlled it, causing or allowing it to happen for his own good purposes and plans to be fulfilled exactly as he has foreordained. So what about you? Have you seen the sovereign hand of God at work in your life? How does it make you feel? You see, a lot of people are not okay with God controlling and being in control of their life. And we see that in their rebellion against him. I believe the problem is one of submission. They don't feel that they should have to submit to God or that God doesn't deserve to be submitted to. Romans 9, 21, or 20 and 21 says this. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? You know, God is our creator. And as creator, he has the right to control and be in control of our lives. Too many people want to tell the creator how it should be used. Worse yet, many times the creation doesn't want anything to do with the creator. But guess what? The creator is still sovereign. He's still in control whether we want him to be or not and whether we believe he is or not. So this morning we're going to continue with the flood narrative. We see that Noah has totally submitted his life and his will to the sovereignty of God. And as the flood has begun, God has been in control of many things. He's been in control of the waters of the great deep, and he's been in control of the floodgates of heaven. This morning, we will also see that he is in control of life and death. He's in control of his judgment. He's in control of his grace. He's in control of the lives of Noah and his family. Two weeks ago, Pastor's big idea was that God is in control of his creation. This morning, we're going to see that he's also in control of recreation as well. Ultimately, God is in control of all things, but he also controls all things. And we need to be willing to come to grips with those truths here in our lives this morning. That brings us to our big idea, which God controls and is in control of all things. So I don't know about you, but that makes me exceedingly happy. Because I, for one, am glad that human beings are not in control of this world or of my life. I want the one true God, the creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, in control not only of this world and what happens in it, but in control of my life and what happens in it as well. And I hope you do too. Before we dive into our passage this morning, though, let's bow our heads for, for prayer. Sovereign God, we thank you for being in control of our lives because you are the only one who can do it perfectly. Help us to accept your rule and reign in our lives and continue to pour out your Holy Spirit on us as we learn from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
So we look at two points this morning. The first is indescribable judgment. That's found in Genesis 7, 17 to 23a. This is what God's word says. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lift the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. So earlier in the chapter, we're told that the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now we're told that the flood kept coming on the earth for 40 days. We can suspect that not only the rain fell for that period of time, but the springs of the great deep kept bursting forth as well for 40 days. Then we see the effect that the flood had on the ark, the effect that the flood had on the earth, and the effect that the flood had on every living thing. And each statement that is made about these three things builds upon the last to give us a picture of the devastating effects of the flood. First, we see how the waters affected the ark. As the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. And that statement is built upon as the waters rose and greatly increased on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Second, we see how the waters affected the earth. As the waters rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered, that statement's built upon as the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits or 20 feet. This means that the water rose to a height of more than 20 feet above the highest mountain. This would allow the ark to float over the surface of the water without running aground. In verses 18, 19, and 20, when it says that the waters rose, it means that the waters triumphed or prevailed. That word is a military word for succeeding in battle. In the battle between the earth and the waters, the waters won. And that's proven by the fact that it covered the mountains over and above to a height of more than 20 feet. Third, it effect, it's, we see that it affected every living creature that moved on the earth, including mankind. Our scripture straight states that every living creature that moved on the earth perished. That statement is built upon, it says that everything on dry land had, that had the breath of life and its nostrils died. And then it even continues to be built upon that every living thing on the face of the earth was not only wiped out, but was wiped off the face of the earth. Hamilton says the use of perished or died instead of drowned reinforces the idea that the loss of life is a divine penalty rather than death due to a natural, natural catastrophe. This is the picture of the devastating effects of the flood. Everything outside the ark came under the indescribable judgment of God. The process of creation that God started in the beginning has now been reversed. So I'm going to pause here a little bit and just talk a little bit about the universality of the flood. Maybe you've never questioned 
whether the flood was universal or local. Or maybe you never even thought about it. But I can tell you scholars are split. For instance, some use science to say there's no way that the flood was universal, and others use science to say that it was. So I'm going to give you some compelling arguments for a universal flood. And then I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on the subject. Many of these arguments come from the Whitcomb and Morris commentary. The first argument for a universal flood is that the language used in Genesis is definitely universal language. But the opponents of a universal flood would say that the same all-inclusive language used in Genesis is also used elsewhere in the Bible, and it doesn't mean all-inclusive there. Also, some scholars say that because man had not been scattered all over the globe, a universal flood was not necessary. They say that a localized flood would have been good enough to accomplish the purpose of the flood, which was universal judgment. The second argument is the concept of displacement. Our scripture says that the flood covered over and above the mountains by 20 feet. If it covered the mountains in one area, it had to cover the mountains in every area of the world because the water would have had to have been, to have been displaced somewhere. Whitcomb and Moore state that the fact that water seeks its own level seems to be decisively against a local flood. The third argument is that the floodwaters covered the earth for more than one year, from the time that Noah entered the ark until he left it. No local flood in history ever lasted that long. And for the water to have covered the earth for that period of time shows that it was a universal flood. The fourth argument is about the size of the ark. If it was a local flood, why did God command Noah to build an ark the size of one and a half football fields? and 30 feet high. If he only needed to save the indigenous species of Mesopotamia, he could have built a smaller boat. Honestly, if it wasn't a universal flood, Noah and the animals could have just walked out of the flood area. Which brings us to another interesting thought. If it was only a local flood, and Noah and the animals could have just walked out to another area to get away from it, why couldn't the rest of humanity just do the same thing? In that scenario, God's judgment would, not, would have been thwarted, and we see that's not been the case. The fifth argument for a universal flood is the testimony of Peter in 2 Peter 3, 3-7. Peter says this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, for being for being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So what Peter's saying is that at the end of the age, God will destroy the world in fiery judgment. And he, ba he bases the universality of that judgment on the uni universality of the flood judgment in Noah's day. If Peter is teaching a universal judgment by fire at the end of the age, why would he compare it to a local flood in Noah's day? And here's one last argument. <clears throat> if the flood was not universal, why did God give us the rainbow as the universal sign of his covenant? We see the all-inclusive language in Genesis 9-11 and 
in Genesis 9.15, which says this. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then verse 15 says, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Wearsby says, God promised to never send another flood like the one he sent in Noah's day. But if the flood was a local event, we know that God did not keep his promise. We see instances of flooding every year in the world. If Noah's flood was a local event, say like Jamestown, then God's promise and the covenant sign of the rainbow mean nothing. The flood bears witness to universal sin and universal judgment and a universal flood. So now I said I'd give my thoughts on the subject. Two things I want to say, and I'll preface the first one with this. I believe that the flood was universal. With that being said, God's all-powerful. Could God have used a localized flood causing no water to be displaced in order to bring about judgment on those outside the ark? Sure. He's all-powerful. I can't begin to understand God and what he may have done. The second thing is this. This argument is not the point of the flood narrative. The second thing, or just like the point of the story of creation is not how God created the heavens and the earth, but that it was God that created them, the point of the flood narrative is not whether it was universal or not, but it's about God's sovereignty over his people. God's sovereignty over his creation. He has the right to rule and he rules rightly. And it's also about his judgment and his grace being poured out in his creation perfectly. That brings us to our second point this morning, which is indescribable grace. And we see that indescribable grace in the midst of his indescribable judgment. Look at verses 23b to 24 with me. This is what God's word says. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. God, out of his infinite love, not only for Noah and his family, but ultimately for us, saved the remnant from out of the world so that he could continue to be in a relationship with his creation, he could, so that he could continue to show his love and care for his creation. And it overflowed out of his perfect sovereignty. I find it interesting that in this passage, there's seven and a half verses describing the judgment of God and only one half of a verse describing his grace. I can't answer that for you. I just thought it was interesting. Outside the ark, everything came under, judgment of, under the judgment of God. Everything inside the ark came under the grace of God. Everything outside the ark died. Everything inside the ark was saved. God's purpose of judgment had been achieved, but also God's purpose of grace had been achieved in the midst of that judgment. Hamilton says, the use of two passive forms of the verbs to describe the fate both of the ungodly and of the righteous Noah suggests strongly that it is, Yahweh, it is Yahweh's action which controls our eternal destiny. They were saved not because of anything they did to deserve it, but solely on the grace and mercy of God. Hamilton also notes that Noah is saved because of Yahweh, and Noah's family is saved because of Noah. Every human being in this narrative owes his preservation to someone else. We also see that in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that Sue read about. If you remember, Lot is saved because of Abraham. And Lot's family is saved because of Lot. 
except for his wife. In God's perfect sovereignty, he gave his grace and mercy to Noah, to his family, to the animals as well. He did this because he is in complete and total independent control over every creature, event, and circumstance at every moment in history. He is subject to none. He's influenced by none and absolutely independent. He does what he pleases, only as he pleases, and always as he pleases. He is in complete control of every molecule in the universe at every moment, and everything that happens is either caused or allowed by him for his own perfect purposes. He's unlimited in power, unrivaled in majesty, and not thwarted by anything outside himself. Our God is in complete control of all our circumstances, causing or allowing them for his own good purposes and plans to be fulfilled exactly as he has foreordained. Lastly, we see that the waters flood the earth for 150 days. The water continued to rise for another 110 days and then reached its peak. The 40 days and 40 nights of rain and the earth being flooded for 150 days demonstrates that no living thing could possibly have survived by escaping to a high place or by clinging to floating debris. Try to imagine what the world would have looked like at that time. Winham says, this section closes with an awe-inspiring picture of the mighty waters covering the entire earth, as though the earth has reverted to its primeval state at the dawn of creation, when the waters of the deep submerged everything. So I, I told you earlier that there's a couple themes in this, but uh, the title of the message this morning was Recreation. You know, God brought the judgment of the flood in order to recreate not only the earth, but to recreate his image bearer, which is mankind as well. God was recreated by sparing Noah and his family and the animals that were in the ark. Think about this idea of recreation as God's salvage operation of humanity. God so loved humanity and wanted to be in a relationship with those that he had created in his image that he salvaged Noah his family, and the animals. Salvaging involves retrieving something valuable from the wreckage. We see this as God's heart so many times in his dealings with his chosen people, the Israelites, and we see it in individuals' lives such as Saul. God salvaged from the wreckage that was Saul's destructive zeal for God and turned that valuable zeal into Paul's apostolic vision for the church. God salvaged Noah from the wreckage of an evil world in his generation and turned it into a new beginning for the human race. God is able to restore even where he has brought destruction. The same God salvages the valuable parts from the wreckage of the sinful rubble of our lives and transforms our lives into useful ministry on this earth for his honor, for his glory, and for his purposes. So as I study this passage, I struggle with what the next steps might be for us this morning. Now, how should we respond to this passage? Now, I could have used the next step on the sovereignty of God or on his recreation or salvaging of us. But as I continue to study the passage, I kept coming back to two different things. The first is found in Luke 17, 26 to 30. 
which I think Sue read most of that, says this again. I'll read it again. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, and marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur, sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus is describing the indifference of the ungodly in those days. The people of Noah's and Lot's times didn't care about God, and their lives were filled with evil. In fact, about Noah's generation, Genesis 6-5 says this, that they thought about evil all the time. All they seemed to care was about living their own lives and in total submission to themselves. Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is telling us that when the Son of Man comes, just like in Noah's day, there will be people here that will not be prepared for the judgment that will come. It's imperative that we are ready for Christ's return or for our physical death, whatever comes first. That's what God desires for every one of his creation. And that brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which is to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and totally submit my life to him in every way. If you take that next step, you will be ready when final judgment comes. I also believe that in the stories of Lot and the Flood, Abraham's and Noah's heart were breaking for those who were going to be perishing. And we know that God's heart's breaking for every one of his creation that has rejected him or will reject him. And our hearts should be breaking for those who don't know Jesus as well, whether it's a family member, friend, or even a stranger that we may be coming in contact with. We need to be like Noah and imploring our friends and family who don't know Jesus to turn to him for salvation because judgment's coming. Now, I did not have that as the next step. I probably should have. But it is the most important step we could take for them. And salvation is the most important step they could take for themselves. The second thing I kept coming back to was found in 2 Peter 3 as well. Earlier I read verses 3 to 7. But if we move ahead to verses 10 to 14, we read these words. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since we're looking forward to this, they get the effort to decide spotless, blameless, and the peace of God.